Well, welcome to episode number 328 of the Hunt Backcountry podcast. Today, our guest is Joel Vanderloon. Joel has quite the background and a varied experience in the outdoors that's much different than mine, and that's why I wanted to speak with him today. He has been a cast member on the History Channel show Alone, where he was dropped into the wilderness to survive on his own as long as he could. Joel also teaches survival courses and much more. And so his background and experience, as I mentioned, is it's much different than mine and probably from yours. And I wanted to speak with Joel about that uh, and then also narrow down on some of the very specific things that we can learn from him. So for myself, for example, I probably rely a bit too much on modern gear and modern technology and don't necessarily have the survival bushcraft or ancestral skills uh, that Joel has. And so I wanted to speak with him about those topics. We dive into a varied conversation that covers everything from mindset to gear to those knowledge pieces and also much more. And this is going to be part one, as you'll hear about in our conversation. And I'm excited to get Joel back for part two. And part of what I want to do in this follow-up episode with him on the future show is answer your questions. And so as you hear this episode, if you have any questions related to kind of the survival topics or the backcountry skills piece, let us know. Send an email to podcast at exomountgear.com, and we would love to consider those questions and topics for a future episode with Joel. But right now, here's part one. I know you'll enjoy it, and thanks for tuning in. Joel, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. Excited to chat with you today. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm excited to learn from you today, personally. And then there's uh, some questions that have come up from listeners that you know they didn't know you were coming on the podcast, but that you have experience and uh, expertise to speak to. So we'll get to some of that. Uh, but to kick things off, go ahead and uh, give us a personal kind of intro background and let listeners know a little bit about who you are. Sure. Uh, yeah, thank you for having me. Um, my, na- my name is Joel Vanderloon, and I currently live in Sisters, Oregon. Um, I've lived all around the world for uh, in various countries, but this is definitely where, where I'm, I feel most at home now and feel very settled. Um, so sort of a bit of my background, I spent, uh, let's see, somewhere around 14 years working um, at sea, actually, as a professional crew member. So I was working in the engineering department and worked on all sorts of you know, fishing boats and private yachts and uh, sailboats and things like that, which took me to a lot of the, a lot of the great uh, parts of the world and gave a very consistent amount of adventure, which, which is what I love. And um, ended up falling in love and marrying a, an American woman. Um, and she is, we've been together now for, um, well, around about 14 years. Actually, I think we just had our anniversary. So um, that's what kind of um, kept me in the States. And I've just fallen in love with the U.S. and um, spent some time living in Florida and California and then, and now here in Oregon. Um, but my um, sort of, when I was a kid, I grew up um, in between Tanzania and South Africa. I was born in South Africa. And was very lucky to have been raised on large property and have a very um, a great access to the outdoors, um, especially the wildlife. That's what I was always fascinated with. So, growing up, you know, spearfishing and and hunting, and you know, that was always a, a a big passion of mine. And it's carried through into my adult life, um, more more so in the sense of just being really infatuated with ancestral skills. Um, it was around, let's see, six years ago, I started my own survival school after, um, after attending courses with other survival schools and really deepening my knowledge. I decided to start my own. And yeah, six, six years down the line, it's um, really provided me some great opportunity in life. I've been able to do some things with TV. I've been able to um, meet some amazingly talented people in this, in this sort of industry. I hate that word, but in the community of um, ancestral skills and survival. And I've been able to learn more than I could have imagined, um, you know, f- from from these various people. And 
and here I am. So I still run this. I still run the school. I used to do it full time. I do it uh, more on a part time basis now. But um, uh, yeah, that's about in a nutshell. That's about me. That's very cool. Um, that, that I'm glad you used that phrase, ancestral skills. That kind of highlights part of what I wanted to talk about today, and and we'll get more into this in a bit. But kind of the oh, the difference between like where you're coming from and having ancestral skills or uh, I think about different aspects of kind of the outdoor segment, you know, you, at least hear what I observe, I'm not saying I'm an expert in this and, and maybe it's a local even to the US, but, you know, I see these kind of different little segments of like guys who are super into bushcraft or super into survival. Um, mm. And then you have, the hunters and then there's different types of hunters, right? It's like a lot of times on this show, we're talking about backcountry hunting, mountain hunting, which is different than maybe some of the guys out East who do whitetail hunting. And there's a lot of overlap and uh, combinations there uh, where guys have different types of experience and then therefore different types of skills and different types of emphasis uh, as they spend time in the outdoors. And part of what I wanted to explore today is more some of the ancestral skills, bushcraft survival stuff that maybe some of the, uh, call it modern, more technical, you know, type hunter, uh, where they maybe have some weaknesses. So like, I'll use myself an example. I'm, I'm probably, if you want to phrase it this way, maybe too reliant on technology and gear and don't have enough of a background in more of the ancestral skills, bushcraft, like true survival stuff. But we'll dive more into that later. One of the things you you mentioned was TV, and some of the guys may uh, recognize you or your name. You were on the show alone. Um, so first, tell us real quick what that show is for guys who uh, may not be familiar, and then talk a little bit about how that maybe came together and what your experience was like there. Yeah, the, the um, Alone show is, I think, on season eight now. So it's been going for a, for, for a while. And the, the premise of it is, <clears throat> excuse me, the premise of it is that you have 10 participants that are dropped off in a very, very remote location. Um, before they dropped off, they're able to select 10 survival items. So there is a, a list that are, are given to participants to choose 10 items from. The list is not like, it's not that big. Um, and most people tend to hover around at least five or six of them are going to be more or less the same, which are going to really meet those needs. Um, uh, you're, you're just your basic survival needs. The rest are going to usually be bushcraft or hunting type tools. And I, and I can definitely mention a few of those that people usually pick. But um, you do get given a list of um, clothing, which does not count. So you you, you get to, as far as your 10 survival items. So you get a, a pretty, I would say, a pretty um, a reasonable amount of clothing to, to be out there with. Um, and then you get given... You, you get given camera training as well as a bunch of camera gear that you have to fill the, film the whole experience with. Um, and then you get given a tarp, which does not include your 10 survival items. And that is to make sure that your camera gear stays dry. However, almost all of us use it as a roof for our shelters. So we pretty much head out with that. And the whole goal is, is to be the last person standing. You have to film the whole experience. They come and do medical checks um, and physical uh, checks on you uh, anywhere from every week to every 10 days. They make it very brief. That's the only contact you have with human beings while you're out there are those medical checks, um, which, as I said, don't last very long. And last person standing um, wins half, half a million dollars. In my case, in season seven, they went... Um, a little bit above and beyond and they wanted to see who could make a hundred days alone and up the stakes to, to mm -hmm. 1 million. So, um, yeah, that was, that's, but that's basically how the alone show works. And, um, the, I think that the best part about, or the most alluring part of, of alone, I think for anyone that's an avid outdoorsman is the opportunity to, to test yourself, to connect with an environment in a much deeper way. Um, which for me, that was one of my biggest goals. I, I would consider myself a, a very spiritual person. And to me, um, you know, to me, God exists in nature and everything I look at. So for me just to have that one-on-one -on -one time with nature uh, undistracted is, is a very profound experience. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, also if you're a hunter, it gives you the opportunity to be able to 
to hunt some some pretty good animals um, that and get some good tags, which otherwise would cost an arm and a leg. Um, but the remoteness of the locations um, definitely provides great opportunity to have encounters with amazing wildlife and hunting and fishing opportunities. And um, but being alone is uh, to not be underestimated um, if someone has never is not used to spending time on their own out there it can be a real challenge mentally um, and of course you've got all the other things which come with this an experience like that it, discomfort you know lack of sleep um, starvation um, you know there's just all these sort of challenges that present themselves daily but but it it was an unbelievable experience and um, so lucky to have had that opportunity when you as a participant are heading into this experience. Do you know where you're headed? What type of terrain, context, weather, even what part of the world you're going into? How much do you know about the location that you're going to be ahead of time? Yes. Well, the location is so key because um, the the gear, your choices that you make for your 10 survival items, I, for me personally, and I, I think I'd speak for most participants, hinges so much on the location. So um, I think we were told six weeks ahead of time. I think it was about six weeks. So I would say it was enough time to, to choose um, uh, the clothing and boots and things like that accordingly um, and to definitely plan what 10 items you were going to take. So I think that it varies, though. You know, like there's so many logistics involved with this show with each and every season. Sometimes uh, participants only get a heads up literally a week or so before and other times it'll be a lot more. So it really depends. Mm, cool. We get a, uh, we try to encourage the listeners of our podcast to, you know, reach out, let us know what questions, topics they want to hear about. And sometimes it's, you know, very much on like tactics or a specific hunting scenario. A lot of it's gear based, et cetera, but it, it, uh, I didn't honestly think of this till now, but we had a listener reach out and ask Steve, the co-host and I, uh, do we think that we could make it on the show alone? Um, and <laughs> so we kind of chatted through our answer of that. And I think it was no for both of us. And part of what uh, I do think, I I don't know that I have the skills, right? As I mentioned before, I probably rely too much on uh all of the gear resources technology I have available to me. So I don't have this like extensive living in the back country with, you know, bare necessities type situation. But mm. part of it for me was that I just thought about, so I just don't have the, um, the why isn't there. Right. So I don't have the yes. desire. So yes, I, okay. you know, I have family, I have kids, like as much as I love adventures solo or not backcountry disconnecting getting in the mountains for a week or for 10 days like I, I thrive off that stuff i need it i do it but i don't have a desire to do it for 30 days or 100 days right um and so for me i was like yeah, i would never make it because i don't have the desire i don't have a why that's going to keep me in it um and i think you touched on it there like some of that for you is the spiritual aspect the connection um, but I'm curious what, what the experience was like for you um, from a mental standpoint, both going into it as well as kind of what you experienced uh, through it as well. Yeah, that the mental experience um, was definitely the most profound, the most memorable, um, but it, it doesn't, the mental never really comes across on the television as, as such, you know, it's never hundred percent true to what you experienced Um of course, because it's all in your head and you try to verbalize it. Um, actually, you do end up verbalizing it just naturally because you don't have anything but a camera to talk to out there. But I, um, I can tell you I went through my, my mental ex um, experience was actually quite distinct. Um, it, it went through three phases, funny enough. And I called these three phases um, the honeymoon, uh, puberty, and then bliss. And the honeymoon phase was literally like, I think, all of um, any outdoorsmen, especially I think hunters, let's say you've planned an amazing trip up to Alaska and you've taken the bush plane, you've just been dropped off and now you're in it. You, you are ready to go off and pursue a game. You're in the country to have fun. It's that elated feeling. 
And I had that um, elated feeling for the first sort of um, week. And, um, you know, just like a kid in a candy store, like it was so much to do. And what am I going to do first? And, you know, focusing on, you know, things like, you know, choosing a good location and starting to, 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 to build the shelter and, and all, you know, while scouting out different areas to fish and hunt. Um, the about day, well, there was a, a, an occurrence on day five, which kind of took a little bit of a mental toll on me. And, um, you know, they, they don't show it in the show, but, um, I actually, sh I shot a big bull moose and it was, I mean, to keep this real short and sweet, um, it was from my assessment, um, a single lung shot and he, um, I, I, I tracked him down about a couple hundred yards away from where I shot him and he actually bedded down. And I thought to myself, well, I'm in a predicament because just with the whole, just the, how quickly it happened, I raked him in and he came in and, and uh, it just all happened so quickly that when I went and when I tracked him down and I, and I saw him bedded down a couple hundred yards, I had no camera gear with me. I had no, nothing to process him with. And, and I knew that this probably was going to take a while um, for him to die. Cause I, I did see the, the, the arrow broken off um, on a tree as he turned and, and ran. And I, and I, estimated around six six to eight inches inside of him which i knew that was you know not it, it was right in the money in in the lungs but it just wasn't a pass through and i knew this could take a while so i actually decided to sneak back to camp to go get the camera gear because the one deal we have to make with production is we've got to film everything and so i i went and got camera gear came back and and uh for whatever reason you know he he decided at some point to stand up and get out of there and when he did um, and I know it wasn't the wind, so I'm just, I, it's, it's still, it still irks me, but, um, yeah, he left and, uh, the blood trail, it's really just dried up completely from where he'd bedded down. And I hiked every single boundary, which were given around about five square miles of land to work on. We, we're not allowed to pass out of those boundaries. Um, I covered every single boundary, couldn't find him. Um, I know that I searched everywhere I possibly could on my location couldn't find him so he he'd actually moved out of my designated um area which broke my heart so that was that was the kind of start of i would say a little bit of um a little bit of depression and then sort of like sunk in a little bit more and and i guess too another thing that i was experiencing was i've, I've spent a lot of time alone in the woods like two weeks 10 days plenty like dozens and dozens of three-day trips one week um, so I know how to handle these changes, but there was something a little different with this aspect. And I think it was just in the back of my mind knowing that this was going to be a long haul. And it was a very quiet environment. The only thing you heard was literally the red squirrels and the wind in the trees. Um, otherwise, it was deathly quiet. And my mind usually loves that, but I don't know what it was. It was just it, it, the silence was almost deafening. And I think that that was maybe playing on me a little bit, and the and the the fact that this moose could have could have been the you know a couple of things is that I hate wounding an animal not recovering. It's although we are in an environment where when that animal does pass, it's not going to waste. There's like a dozen a dozen different species there which will feed on it. But um, you know, I I could have potentially had meat to take me through 100 days easily. Um, so it was kind of on my shoulders and I went through this, what I call stage of puberty where from about day seven to day 14, it was just like this weird um, fogginess and sort of just these, these emotional swings that were going, I was going through. And then it was about day 17 um, where I, I just remember one day just sitting there and feeling just like this overwhelming feeling of joy and gratitude for being out there and, and just really succumbing to um, the quietness and the acceptance of being alone. And, 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 and Mark, I, I'm not kidding to you, like, like, like flipping on a light switch, something in my brain instantly, like tangibly just changed. And I knew that something had just like clicked in my brain. And from there onwards, every single day was just filled with acceptance. 
Um, it's the best word I can use. It's just acceptance. It didn't matter if it snowed, if a windstorm came in for three days, if I wasn't successful, you know, um, getting as much food as I wanted that day, whatever it may be. I mean, you know, at night, wolverines were fighting out my sh- outside my shelter and they'd often bump into it. And when I'd find bear scat, there was no, there was no fear. There was absolutely no fear. It was just pure acceptance and bliss from being out there and being so connected with the land and being so, um, so present. And so that was, the, that was pretty much the mindset that then continued until I left. However, physically, I, I weakened a lot. So, um, so that, was, that was pretty much mentally what, it, what, um, what I experienced. But I mean, I definitely, for me, the most vivid and, and the, the, the memory that I'm most fond of, of that whole experience was, was really what I wanted. And that is to, just like our ancestors, was to feel one with the environment. You know, this, the red squirrels, for instance, and this is a, an example I always tell people because it's, it's to me, it's so special. They were, um, the red squirrels, squirrels were my, my, my weather gauge. There was, um, I was so in tune with the noises they made and watching them, their activity. Um, you know, they're very frantic little creatures. And um, I knew by their, their behavior, especially when they had spent, when they spend more time on the ground um, foraging all of the, uh, the black spruce um, uh, seeds from the cones and that they, they, they do it in a way when they, when they get very frantic that you know that there's some bad weather coming. So I'd always have like a, a one day heads up, sometimes a six hour heads up before these, these, these storms would roll in. And I owed all to the squirrels and they kind of became my little buddies out there. But um, you know, just having that level of connection, um, I, I feel to me was, um, I think what every human being used to experience on a daily basis. I think it's, um, healthy for our mind. I think we crave it maybe some subconsciously, but we crave that sort of level of connection to the natural world. So for me, that was, um, what I, what I very much miss from that landscape and that experience. So cool, man. I think it's, uh, it's such a unique, special opportunity. And I've had some, some similar experiences on, you know, longer trips or very remote trips. Uh, at the same time, I would encourage listeners that you can have those types of experiences, maybe not the same, right. But, um, connections with nature, those, uh, those moments of gratitude and things like that in much smaller ways. Like, um, 100%. I mean, I was, I just did an early morning trail run this past weekend and, and started in the dark, which isn't uncommon, but just one of those gorgeous mornings. It was like 10 degrees outside. The sunrise was just amazing. I wasn't far from home. I wasn't remote, but just getting outside, often doing something physical, having some quiet, like it was a longer, uh, a longer run. So it wasn't like this 20 minute experience. It was, you know, a couple Mm. hours. And so I had like, you know, the first hour you're thinking through things and whatever, right? Like your mind's full of stuff, but the the more you, yeah, the chatter, but the more you settle into something, even in a couple hours, um, you know, that mindset shift and then just being fully present is, you know, it's so valuable. A hundred percent. I mean, it, it doesn't take, it doesn't take, you know, 20, 30, 40 days, 50 days to, to really tap into this. In fact, I, I from my experience um, d- doing this alone, I actually can uh, fairly accurate say that around three days is the number when you're out there on your own to, to, to reach that different mindset. But as you say, I think things like, you know, um, intentional meditation and exercise, and that just gets you to that place a little quicker. Mm-hmm. You know, gets you in that zone. Yeah. For guys who maybe the, the idea of doing something alone for any extended period. Uh, and again, it's probably leading to my question. Extended can be defined different ways. So if a guy's never, uh, spent a night in the woods alone, like one night. I mean, that, that could be huge. Uh, and oh, for other huge. guys, maybe that's yeah. going from a night or two to doing a full week trip. But I guess what I'm, what I want to get at is mm, 
compare it to like building a muscle or using a muscle, right? Do you think that the kind of like the capabilities or the value of starting small and then building over time in terms of backcountry and especially solo experiences is something that can be built essentially if practiced? Yes, I, I definitely do. You know, I, I, I 100% believe from what I've experienced with taking participants out there is that there is something just inherently um, disturbing to us about spending nights in the woods, in the dark woods alone. And, I, and maybe this goes way back to where we actually did have a lot of concern about predators that um, if we didn't have a fire going and we weren't in a group and, you know, we weren't extremely aware, we probably would get taken out, you know. Whereas now, uh, depending on what part of the country you're in, yes, there are legitimate concerns, maybe some grizzlies, maybe a cougar here and there, you know. But overall, we're in a, in a kind of a situation where our lands are, all the wildlife are managed and a lot of predators have unfortunately been reduced to the, to the numbers that we, don't, we can go out into public land and have very little concern. And I think that if people could tackle that, um, that sort of, uh, you know, that fear of being sleeping out in the woods alone. And when I say alone, like I, having a tent is such a psychological barrier. So, you know, if it's somewhat, if you, if you really feel like that is the obstacle, uh, is that sleeping in the woods alone, then I would encourage you to take a tent initially because the tent, it's amazing. It's uh, it, it does nothing in the way of protecting you from an animal that really wants to get to you. But it does provide the psychological barrier, just like sitting in front of a fire does. And so start off that way. But there is a lot to be said for sleeping out in the woods um, for a night or two or three um, with, without a tent and just sleeping under the stars um, or, or a top, or, you know, something that's more exposed where you are a little more in tune with your environment while you're trying to sleep. And that usually for most people in the beginning will you won't get too much sleep but once you do it a little bit more and a little bit more it just becomes a little bit more comfortable and you kind of realize wow there is no big bad uh, boogeyman there is no like there is no bear that's just hiding around that log just waiting for me to go to sleep and then it's going to tear my face off um and it, and i think that there's a lot of liberation that comes with that sort of realization that you can be out there and you can be, you can be safe and you can be confident and comfortable. Um, and I think that a lot that does just take some time and I 100% think it can be built, but I think it's just um, mentally, you know, just going through a little bit of that roller coaster ride before you realize, you know, this is, this is okay. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that about uh, the tent and the, the psychological aspect of that. And sometimes that's even, uh, in our context, different types of shelters. So, you know, yes. we've talked about, again, like you mentioned sleeping with just a tarp versus an enclosed tent. And some guys just like have a mental barrier. Uh, mm. and a lot of times before they've tried it. Right. But in their head, it's like, I don't know that I could do that. You know? And it's like, what is 10 D cell nylon going to protect you from? But <laughs> I fully, I mean, yeah. I fully get it. Like I've, I've been there, done that. Um, are there other, you mentioned tent, you mentioned fire. Are there other things that come to mind for you that are, I don't want to use the word crutches by any means, but that bring some level of like comfort and security that are maybe a bit false or maybe just we need to realize aren't fully necessary at times, at least. You know, let me, let me, um, let me, uh, let's break it down from the beginning and, and move towards uh, the reliance on the gear um, because every person is individual. I mean, I, I've been, I've been out in, into leading uh, tours for like whatever, five days a week with people that have relatively um, minimal experience. And honestly, if I took their tent away, they would be less upset if I took their coffee away. So, so, so let me, let me backtrack a little bit because it depends on each person. We, as, as human beings, when we first um, uh, sort of figured things out, let's put it that way, back in the day, um, we needed, we, we realized um, after sort of traversing different landscapes and, and working as a community, we realized that we needed five things. 
we needed fire. Okay, we needed fire for various reasons to cook, to potentially boil water, keep warm, uh, fend off predators. Um, fire is a big, a big aspect for tool making. You know, the list goes on. Fire was, was everything. Um, we needed to have a cutting tool, you know, and depending on whether you're in rainforest or whether you're, whether you're in desert, that will depend on what cutting tool you need. But as human beings, we rely on tools. Um, we are, that's what we needed in order to keep ourselves alive. And that's how we are where we are today was, was being able to make what we need. So a cutting device was at the, at the bare minimum of what we needed. Of course, that used to be um, rocks, you know, various types of rocks that were broken into sharp, sharp uh, edges, which we ended up perfecting and doing a very good job of. And some would argue that things like obsidian arrowheads are probably, you know, um, with, with a well-made obsidian arrowhead would compete against some of the best steel broadheads now. Um, we needed a um, cover material. Now, of course, if you're in the tropics, that could be limited to just some clothing, whether it's made out of bark or of animal skins, um, whatever it may be, or whether you're up in North America, you know, and you need um, bison hide and you need, you know, animal skins, you need substantial amount of cover as far as clothing and as far as shelter. Regardless, we needed some sort of protection from the elements. Um, cordage. So rope is, was another one that we, we really needed for various reasons. And we learned how to make it um, through animal sinew, animal uh, you know, skins, rawhide. Um, there's a variety of plant fibers um, that can be very effective. Um, and then the last of all was we needed containers. You know, containers were big. And so you look at the, the, the different parts of the world and containers were, once again, were made in these different parts of the world. Archaeological um, sites will always reveal these different items in different forms. So, of course, clay, common clay, you know, to make pots, but other, other um, indigenous, they made them out of burning bowls, you know, burning, using fire and burning into wood and making bowls that way. You know, there's um, obviously a lot of the, the, um, the Native Americans used to process acorns and stuff by, you know, hammering into rocks that were big boulders that were already existing. And over time, they would use the same boulders and eventually they would actually um, mill out a hole in these rocks. And, uh, you know, you can, there's plenty of places in North America, you can actually find these. Um, so, so those five things were what we needed in order to survive. Because with those five things, we could then tackle hunting. You know, we could tackle carrying water. We could tackle carrying uh, forageables. And then you're starting to delve into, well, now we can travel further because if we can carry things in containers, well, we can go further and we can go further if we can stay warm with these animal skins. So from there, everything just, just progressed. Um, so now if you look at a, a modern day outdoorsman, I would just, I really just kind of look at those five things, you know, like what, what are the bare essentials? And so if you break that down for the, the backcountry hunter, um, of course, that's going to be our modern day, whether it be a recurve, a longbow, a compound, a gun, we've got a tool to hunt with. And it might not be stone, um, it might not be a bow, but either way, we've got a way to put meat on the table. We have got an array of modern um, materials to keep ourselves war uh, warm, anything from wool to down to polyester, you know, you name it, we've got our pick. Um, I think that the clothing um, is is somewhere that we really have gone in the right direction. Um, I mean, I don't know if you've ever put on like a, you know, like a legitimate um, hide that from like a bison or something and just experienced that, but it, it's Animals, animal um, fur is, is probably warmer than almost any man-made material. However, it's so heavy. So, you know, the fact that we've made, we've come so far with making these amazing clothing materials that we have, and they're so lightweight, I think that that's just been spectacular, you know, and I, I definitely don't shun um, the, the, the modern day gear that we've made. I just think it, it requires a perspective though there's just there's just a realization that i think everyone should have of, of how it was in the beginning and how it is now and just have a healthy respect for that um 
you know, we, we all, all of us, whether it's matches, um, a lighter, we always carry a means of making fire out there. And we've got our pots, you know, with our little, whether it be just a little cooking stove or whether you do cook on fire out there, we've all got our pots and a cup and stuff. So, you know, where I'm going with this is, you know, we, we carry these five items with us every time we go out there. Um, we just see it in, in, in not so much of the same form. But there are some other essentials, which I'll say, you know, are extremely helpful. Um, I think having a headlamp is such a big, is such an asset. I wouldn't really call it a luxury. I think a headlamp is, is key. I mean, think about it if you've, you know, been on an afternoon, evening hunt and you've got an animal down and it's, it's um, time to process and you're in the back country and it's now dark. I mean, you know, processing the animal is one thing, but trying to get back to camp safely is another thing, uh, especially if there's no moon and you're in thick timber. So, you know, having a headlamp, I think, is, is, a, is an extremely important safety device. So I definitely recommend a good quality headlamp always with spare batteries, maybe even have two. Um, I think that a really good knife is key. And I, I, I do, I would say something about the knife. I noticed that a, a few backcountry um, folks that I've met, carrying a fixed blade knife is not really what's done. It seems a lot of the time they carry more of a smaller, you know, folding knife. And that is absolutely acceptable. But if you actually got lost out there and you were in a situation where you were relying heavily on that knife, um, the folding knife is susceptible to breaking more than a fixed blade is, you know, so especially if you're going to baton, which is basically using your knife as a wood splitter. So I, I like to carry a fixed blade and I like to carry a folding knife. My folding knife is more for skinning and stuff. And it's the sharp one. And I keep the, the, the fixed blade for, um, you know, for, for doing those tasks, which, which I can be a little more rough with the knife. I also like to carry that on my hip. So and, that, and when I say a, a fixed blade, I'm not talking about like a machete. I'm, t I'm talking about, you know, four-inch blade, just a reasonably sized knife. Um, and then, of course, um, you know, getting into, I think, more of the sleeping arrangement. Well, there's, I think, it depends on how much weight you want to carry. And I guess this, this is a whole, um, I mean, I could go down this rabbit hole a lot. I don't know. Am I talking too much or is... Oh, this has been, yeah, please continue. It's been great. <laughs> um, I think the sleeping arrangement though is, is definitely one. Um, if I had to pick one where, where I would say you see more of the excess, I would say the sleeping arrangement is where probably most people go a little bit overboard. Um, I think that narrowing that down um, serves two benefits. I think the number one is you carry less weight and also that simplicity that you have with a, a, a smaller sleeping system is it's, it's just more compact in your pack. Um, so I'm a big fan. I, I never, ever sleep in tents. I, I just, I never really, I haven't, I haven't slept in tents for years apart from with my, um, my family and my son um, when we're kind of camping. But when I'm in the back country alone, I actually gravitate more towards um the the top um I, I use one by hennessy um and it's a great little top but there are other more lightweight tops tops that are even smaller mine is probably like i don't know it's probably weighs like geez seven ounces or something it's pretty light um and it's a hexagonal shaped top and the reason i like the hexagonal shaped top is you can actually manipulate that into a lot of different shelter constructions like types you could do an A-frame, you can do more of a lean-to. You can actually do one that's sort of half and half where the back of the shelter touches the ground. You know, say you're, say you're having to spend a miserable night on this sort of, this like you're on like a little saddle or something like that and you've got um, the wind shifts coming down off the, off the, off the ridge and it's, um, you know, you're unfortunately spending the night there for whatever reason. You can kind of um, get the, the back end of the top at this hexagonal shape. You can get it real low to the ground to stop any wind from coming through. And then the other end would be open, facing downhill. Um, you can really manipulate it into a lot of different um, designs. And so it's quite versatile in that respect. And so I, I def definitely like the hexagonal one. Um, and also because the hexagonal one is kind of ideally shaped for when you are sleeping in a, top, in a hammock. And so on the not so cold hunts, 
I really love a hammock because talk about compact. I mean, a hammock and a top is just about as small as you can get any sleeping system, but it definitely comes, um, it definitely comes at a disadvantage. If I would say you're freezing temperatures and below at night, I find that you have to have insulating um, pad for your hammock. Otherwise that cold air comes up and just comes through the hammock, uh, through the sleeping bag and just really just chills you to the bone. So at that point, I usually just will not have a hammock and I'll just have a very, very minimalist um, inflatable mattress um, on the ground. And I am a huge fan of a bivy sack. So if you have, uh, here's another, here's, I mean, here's a sleeping system at the bare minimum, which I'll use um, if I am like, you know, if it's, let's say it's uh, late at night and you want to go throughout some bugles and then you, you know, you locate a bull and you want to, you want to hunt that bull in the morning. Um, I will just bivy, I'll bivy it right there and then, and then at, just before it gets light, we'll make our way down there. And that'll look like a bivy with a very lightweight inflatable mattress that goes inside the bivy and then the sleeping bag inside. I like that setup because the bivy is waterproof and weatherproof. The, um, the inflatable mattress um, kind of stays uh, located correctly underneath your sleeping bag because of the bivy sack. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't get pushed out from underneath you, which with a, with a minimalist, really small uh, pad, I find that without the bivy, that does tend to happen. Um, so yeah, sometimes I'll just take the sleeping bag, the bivy and the, um, and, and the mat. But if I feel like there's any chance of some bad weather, um, it's, although it'll keep me dry, it's not fun. So, so that's where the, the top really comes in. So that's, that's pretty much my sleep system at the bare minimum. Um, I, I have had a sort of a little bit of an up and down relationship with the inflatable mattresses because um, they're just not that durable. But I feel like with just being a little conscientious with where you're going to put it down, um, and making sure that any sharp objects are removed from that sleeping area. I have since then never had a problem, but I have popped a couple before. And then I, I was really big on the foam mattresses. The only thing with the foam mattresses um, is they're just so cumbersome. They're light, but they're just, they take up a lot of space. Um, and I really love to keep my hunting pack as light as possible. Good stuff. Um, while we're mentioning items and gear, let's hop back to your experience on a loan, you mentioned you're able to take 10 things. Uh, you mentioned prior four or five of those tend to be fairly common. So I'd love to hear what those were. Uh, and then secondarily, we can hop into after that. Was there any uh, changes you would have made to the 10 things you selected after your experience? So start with maybe those common four to five. Yes. Okay. So yes, I would have changed some things. Um, the common four to five really focus on those, on those foundational things that I'd mentioned previously. So a sleeping bag, you know, for, for your, for your warmth and your shelter, that's a big one. Uh, everyone chooses a sleeping bag. Everyone chooses a pot, whether it be more of a pan style, or cast iron or yeah, titanium, whatever, everyone chooses a pot. Um, majority of people will choose the fire fire starter, which is a ferro rod, ferrocerium rod. That's the, that's the only option we get. We don't get to choose matches or light or anything like that. Um, and there have been a few people that have gone out without the ferrocerium rod, felt very comf uh, confident in their friction fire abilities, um, which I, I'm very confident in my friction fire abilities. But man, there's a lot to be said for the amount of um, energy that gets wasted in, in trying to start up a friction fire. And then also being able to start a fire whenever you want. That was, that's crucial in those sort of temperatures. So I think the ferro rod is just so crucial to, to, to take, uh, take that opportunity and, and, and have it with you. Um, cordage. So uh, trapping wire um, or um, uh, paracord or even both, but almost everyone will choose one or the other. And then um, finally, the knife will be, uh, some people will take a multi-tool only. Some people will take a multi-tool and a knife. Um, you know, there's, of course, axes and um, saws. Most people are going to either take an axe or a saw, um, sometimes both. Um, and then, of course, a knife or a multi-tool. So that's the real foundational um, uh, items that everyone will take. And then from there onwards, it, it is more related to are you more of a 
a fisherman or you're more of a hunter, you know, more of a trapper, and you can kind of then choose more of your items based on that. Mm, perfect. You mentioned um, that experience with the bull moose and it sounds like you have a shot him with a bow and arrow. Was that one of the 10 items then that was on the list? Yes. Yeah. So um, a bow and, and nine arrows is one of the items and a shooting glove. And that is strictly has to be a wooden recurve or longbow. And obviously, well, maybe not obviously, <laughs> I should have said that. Are you able to then bring yours, meaning like this bow of your specifications that you maybe own and have experience with? Or are they going, yes. you can take this yeah. bow yeah, that yeah, we're going to provide? Yeah, you take your own, yeah. And okay. in fact, um, you, you take all the gear. So okay. they just give you this sort of um, the do's and don'ts of, of So each, you get to pick um, like your sleeping bag, for example. Correct. Okay. Correct. Got yeah, it. like with the sleeping bag, there's a couple, I think with the sleeping bag, it was like you can't have like a, like a military sleep system, which is basically like three sleeping bags and one with the bivy. Uh, with your bow and arrow, you have to have minimum 40 pound um, bow. It has to be, uh, what did they say? It was like, it has to be mostly wood. Um, the arrows have to be wood or look like wood. The broadheads, of course, the broadheads just have to had to um, uh, fit within regulation. I don't are they allowed to done? No, they did allow three blade, two or three blade, but it had to fit within regulation for whatever that area is. So we have like all this list of requirements, and as long as we meet the requirements, we can choose the gear we want. Got it. Let's uh, let's camp on fire a little bit. Um, mm. Again, I think this is a mix of. Uh, gear and skills together uh, as we talk about fire starting, fire building. Um, obviously important both from a safety perspective as well as we've talked about prior, just having the presence of a fire as a, as a mood booster. It's a comfort, especially on a, a long hunt. So there's many, many reasons we would need fire as backcountry hunters, many ways you could build a fire. Um, let's start with we don't have any rules, meaning you get to choose troll. What yeah. are you taking? Like, this isn't alone. It, it doesn't have to be a feral rod. You're going on a sure. week long hunt. Let's say it is in Alaska. Um, what are you packing in terms of the tools, gear, uh, utility of creating fire? I am always packing the same thing and I'm, and I'm going to get to what that thing is, but First off, why do I always pack the same thing? Because I've figured that regardless of what environment I go into, I want to be prepared for the worst weather, the windiest, wettest, coldest weather. And I want to know with 100% certainty that I can start a fire right when I want to, whenever in, the, in that type of environment. And so when you, when you, when you keep that in mind, and you're choosing the, the sort of type of device that you want to make a fire with, you'll notice that there's a lot of flaws and a lot of different ways to make fire. Unfortunately, I'll just use uh, lighters and matches as an example. Um, matches are not all made the same. So some, some, some are better quality than others. Um, of course, if you're choosing a military grade waterproof match, great. If you're choosing just the you know, 50 cents packet from the gas station down the road, not the same. So wind is such a huge factor, which makes starting a fire with matches, um, depending on the, I'm saying, I'm talking about real windy and rainy. And it's, it's, all, it's near impossible. So also once the box gets soaked, you're done. So to me, that's not even an option. Lighters, unfortunately, where they really suffer in cold, cold temperatures. You know, the gas inside there starts to thicken up. You don't get as much of a flame coming out when you ignite it. Plus, lighters, actually, if you've noticed, they take quite a significant amount of dexterity. If, if you're, like, let's say you're, um, yeah, let's say, let's say you've got an animal on the ground and you're just sort of going through the process of skinning and all that. You don't have gloves on. It's nighttime. It's hovering around freezing. Your hands are getting cold because they're exposed. And you get to the point where you realize, wow, if we're going to be here another four hours or something, just, you know, you know, deboning this thing and whatnot, whatever you want to do, um, we need to get a fire going. And if you notice at that point, once your hands are already cold, trying to get a lighter going is actually very challenging. 
um, you know, and then add to the fact that you can break them. Um, you know, the flints inside sometimes break, you can run out of gas. There's a lot of weak points to lighters. So do I not carry a lighter? No, no, I definitely carry one, but that's my backup fire source. Um, but my choice of starting fire is, is a ferro rod. Um, I do prefer carrying the six inch ferro rod and that's, that's ferrocerium. So it's kind of like an alloy of different materials. And once again, they're kind of not all made the same. They use different alloys of aluminum and magnesium, um, and, and these different pyphoric, um, materials in order to throw these, these huge sparks, um, but I do not just bring the ferro rod on its own. I use, uh, I, I bring that in combination with um, cotton balls and Vaseline, which is, which is a synthetic tinder. And it's, um, it's very simple and very, very cheap. And I can, you know, you buy one, one jar of Vaseline, one, one packet of cotton balls, and it'll last you for years. And so you just smear the, the, um, the Vaseline into the cotton balls. And I keep those inside of a small um, watertight container. And the benefit of that is that, you know, the, the petroleum jelly in the, in the Vaseline is flammable. So you mix that in with that cotton ball and the cotton ball obviously provides the right sort of material, uh, sort of consistency for tinder, you know, like your little bird's nest. If you, if you didn't have it, you usually try and make a bird's nest out of natural, whatever it may be, grass, bark. Um, so I throw a spark into that cotton ball and Vaseline, which gives me usually about three and a half minutes of burn time, somewhere around there. And I can get a fire going with that in any weather. I can take wet twigs, completely wet soaked twigs, and I can get them to ignite. And of course, it, it's not as simple as like throwing gasoline on a fire. You do have to have a bit of technique with how you construct the fire with starting with very, very small twigs and then building them bigger and bigger and bigger as they start to burn. But I can get a fire going in any conditions. The ferro rod can drop in the lake and I can get it two months later, shake it off and throw sparks and it'll work. It's just about indestructible. It's very simple. There's just nothing to it, no moving parts. Um, so that aspect of reliability and durability is, is kind of what I, what I treasure. So yeah, cotton ball, Vaseline and a lighter. That's my, that's my fire making for the, for the backcountry. Awesome. We, uh, I've used the cotton ball and Vaseline a ton, used it extensively and always pack them. So that's good to hear. Uh, yeah, cause I'm sure you've relied on them much more than I have. I found them very convenient, but I haven't always been in those like true survival situations. So it's good to hear, uh, a confirmation of those. Yeah. You can, you can, you can buy a million different things in the market right now that, um, will be a, more effective than cotton ball Vaseline's, but Vaseline, but you pay a lot of money for them. And, um, I just feel like if you're looking for the way to do it on budget, I, I just feel like they do they do the same thing as most of these marketed um, mm -hmm. proprietary ones do. So, yeah. You mentioned the different compositions. It sounds like sizes as well. Ferro rods. I know that you mentioned a six inch. I have one. It's, it's smaller. Um, any, maybe on the more on the composition side or just a specific model you would recommend in general for guys who are new to kind of considering a ferro rod. Yeah. Um, so so to, the reason that I recommend um, the six inch and I, and I would say I would break that even down four to six inch, but um, the six inch is so much better because the small ones that you can find, well, just about anywhere, you know, REI, wherever it may be, they don't give you um, as much of a, of a, of a stroke, uh, you know? So if you think about a six inch, when you're, when you're trying to develop a spark, you're really just running a sharp edge, a bird edge, usually down the rod. And whether that's the back of your knife, or whether that's with the actual striker that it comes with, or whether you've lost both and you're just using a sharp rock in the woods, either way, you're scraping material off of this, this, this device in order to create, create spark. So the longer the rod, the more opportunity you're going to have to create that spark. If you've got one of those little gimmicky two-inch you know, um, fire rods that you can buy, um, and, and I think even Leatherman, I think Leatherman makes one now with a ferro rod in there. Um, you don't, you get such a small stroke that without practice and really understanding how it works, uh, to, to get a fire going is, is actually very challenging. I mean, I teach people all the time how to make fire with ferro rod and, um, it, it's most people find it very challenging with the cotton ball and Vaseline. They don't, but if you're going to try and make a fire, um, out of making a natural, natural tinder bundle. Most people have a, have a, have a hard time with it, um, getting to throw a big enough spark. 
So that's mm. why six inches, having that extra length, it just is so much easier to develop that big spark. To, to, um, uh, just to give some recommendations or sort of outlets for you to get a, a good ferro rod. Um, four, four Directions Bushcraft, um, they've pretty much focused on fire starting devices. So that's a great company, uh, very reasonably priced. Um, of course, Amazon would have, have a variety, but um, Pathfinder, uh, the Pathfinder School, so Dave Canterbury, um, he, he's got a website called Self-Reliance Outfitters. And they're pretty much the go-to for bushcraft stuff. So they've got a huge variety of, um, of items on their uh, ferro rods, one of them. And he does actually, I, I got to give a little shout out. He's got an amazing selection of, I think he calls them the bush cook pot system, something like that. Um, amazing cooking pots that I use all the time. And uh, go on his website and check it out. You'll see what I'm talking about. But it's um, some really good products there. Perfect. Um, on fire as well. I know you mentioned kind of the structure of the fire, how you want to build the nest, start with smaller tinder, work your way up. Uh, a lot of guys are probably pretty familiar with that idea. So I don't want to camp on that, but, um, to build on the idea of how to then go from spark or tinder burning to full on fire in wet conditions. So whether it's sourcing, drier tinder and wet conditions or anything else that comes to mind, uh, but particularly fire building in wet, windy, or just difficult conditions in the weather. Any quick tips on that? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question because I feel like most backcountry hunters and anglers will be able to start a fire pretty easy and in good conditions. Wet conditions are very challenging, obviously, because everything gets soaked. However, not everything does get soaked. And I, I, I don't care where you are in the world, even in temperate rainforests, you're still going to be able to access somewhat dry material. And it might not just be standing there in front of you, easy to, to, um, to, just, to just harvest from a tree. Um, you may have to take pieces and actually you know, carve off the bark and carve off the wet outer layer to get down into the dry stuff. So where I would recommend people start is if it's really if it's really rainy, is to avoid the ground. Anything that's touching the ground is going to be soaked. Um, you're going to want to you're going to want to look for for standing dead trees, or of course trees that have sort of fallen over but been propped up by another tree. Any sort of trees that are not lying on the ground, and then focus your attention on those branches that um, are most uh, sheltered from the rain. And sometimes you might get lucky. Um, when you, you know, you might be able to harvest um, dry enough wood that way. Um, how, how do you know when it's dry enough? Well, there's a very, very distinct snap that you should hear when you break um, a couple of, you know, I'm talking about sort of pencil thickness. So if you're breaking off a couple pieces pencil thickness and you hear that distinct snap, that's a really good sign that you've got dry wood. So you can, you can harvest that way. Another way is if you're really just sort of walking around, you keep doing this and you're just not getting that snap, everything seems absolutely soaked, then you may be wanting to look into pieces that are sort of somewhat wrist thickness. And you're going to want to um, get that knife out and actually start splitting that wood. So batoning, as I was saying, unless you do have an axe or something like that. But batoning is, is very simply... You know, if you think about you got a piece of firewood, like let's say you got a round and you're chopping it with your axe, you know, for your wood stove, instead of like using an axe to come down and chop through that round, that round is smaller and you're just placing your knife on top of it, centered, and then you're using um, a stick, worst case would be a rock, but you're using like a heavy stick that would be somewhat like a club and you're just hitting the back, the spine of the knife. And then it's, it's working as, it's, as a wedge, as a splitter through the wood. So you'd keep doing that. And you really want to get to the center of that wood where it's probably going to be dry. So the outside would have been soaked, but it would not have made all the way through to the center of the wood. And really, it's, it's just more so about the, the starting of the fire with the dry wood. If you can get the fire going with the dry wood, um, once you build up a coal bed, which really a lot of the heat of a fire really comes from emanates from the coal bed. Um, you can then at that point take pretty much soaked wood and you'd be able to burn it. Yes. It's going to be smoky as heck, but, but it'll burn if you have that coal bed. And then of course there's going to be things which, which really like would be um, very unique to different environments. So depending on what environment you're in, 
Cedarbark. Uh, Cedarbark is amazing um, because it does not absorb water very easily. It's, it's very flammable. It's a great way to start a fire. Um, uh, of course, fatwood or the sort of the, the part of um, heartwood, the part of the, the pine tree that produces the resin content. Um, if you can find that in wet weather, well, that's money because anything, any piece of wood that's been substantially um, impregnated by the resin will not absorb water. It's, com- it's been completely waterproofed. So, um, and, you know, fat wood really is something that is, um, it's pretty obvious when you, once you found it once, it then becomes a little bit easier, but it basically seems to be wood that's extremely hard because of that resin content. It'll be slightly yellower in color and you will smell the turpentine. That's the real key is that the turpentine in pine pitch makes it flammable. So you'll be able to smell that in the wood. Um, and it can be tricky to find, um, but a lot of the dead standing pines or pines that have fallen over, they tend to congregate a lot of that resin in the sort of armpits of each of the branches. So if you, if you can chop off a branch near the trunk um, of, of a sort of a dead pine, um, you would be able to probably locate some, some pitch in there. Um, uh, some fat wood in there. So, you know, that's, that's unbelievable. It burns like cotton ball and Vaseline. It's, uh, it's flammable. It does not absorb water. And that is uh, just a great, great um, um, option. And then lastly, I'll just mention um, birch bark, you know, paper birch bark. Um, Birches, of course, we're looking a little bit more in the northern climates. Um, but birch bark, you can literally just shake the water off, scrape it up a little bit and set a light and it'll burn in just about anything. So, there's three three items alone, uh, depending on the environment you're in, that really just work well for wet weather. Great, Joel. This has been so good. There's a lot, a lot that we didn't get to. So uh, if you're up for it, man, I would love to follow up with you and maybe reschedule a part two uh, if we could do that in the future. Absolutely, I'd love to. Awesome. Well, listeners, that said as well, if you're hearing this first part as it's released um, and you have questions, topics along these lines that you'd like to hear about, uh, send us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. And that's something that we will try to address then with Joel on a follow-up episode. Um, Joel, before I do let you go this morning, just real quick, if you can share any resources in the meantime that you would like to point listeners to uh, your website or any other uh, items you'd like to mention, please go ahead and share those. Um, yeah, I would say uh, I mentioned the knife and the ferro rods earlier. Um, the the knife, uh, there's so many knives to choose from out there. Um, but if if anyone's interested in a fixed fixed blade knife, um, I would point them in the direction of of Moraknev, so usually termed Mora. They have a variety of models. So there's the Companion, there's um, Garberg. There's a lot of different different types, but you you really cannot go wrong with any model of the Mora and Mora can be found. Um, just about all of them can be found on Amazon. They're very accessible. They're Swedish made. Um, and for the price point cannot be beat uh, a Mora companion, which is actually one that I still use a fair amount. They're 20 bucks. So that's really accessible to everyone. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the Exo Mountain Gear packs, man. I, I, this is not just to give you the shout out, but um, I, I have yet to find a pack that is obviously not only comfortable um, and durable, but a pack that meets the bushcraft needs as well as the hunting needs. Just the fact that it can pack, you can sort of compress it to a day pack that is so low profile. But it's also like all of the storage options. I love the long side pockets for keeping an axe in, you know, an axe and a long folding saw, um, you know, arrows in the side and that. So honestly, like uh, I, to me, there's, um, a f- there's no better pack for the backcountry. So that's obviously a big recommendation. Um, and yeah, I think I would just say that um, – that self-reliance outfit is such a such a, a great uh, company with a lot of different good options on there. I don't particularly feel like there's any other gear that I'm really married to, but um, yeah, probably just keep it at that. 
Okay. Very cool. And what is your website, Joel? If guys want to follow your social media, check out courses, anything like that. Yeah. The, the, I'm on Instagram, uh, Joel V Bushcraft. Um, and then I'm on YouTube, Joel V Bushcraft. And then, uh, my website is bush survivaltraining.com. Perfect. Well, thanks again for the time today. And, uh, hopefully we can make that part two happen. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Sounds good. Thank you, Mark. Well, that's a wrap, guys, at least for now. I'm excited to get Joel back on for part two. Don't forget to let us know what questions or topics you want to hear about in that follow-up conversation. And to do so, just send an email to podcast at exomountgear.com. As always, guys, we appreciate you tuning in and then also sharing your feedback and questions and topic suggestions with us. Uh, One final quick request is if you can leave a rating or review in the podcast app that you're using, it would help us tremendously. And be sure to hit that subscribe or follow button if you haven't already so that you do receive future episodes automatically. We'll talk to you soon.